Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Parshat Truma, we are in the second triennial reading, so that puts us at chapter 26, verse 1. Everybody got it? <coughs> Excellent. All right. As for the tabernacle, make it of ten strips of cloth, make these of fine twisted linen, of blue, purple, and crimson yarn, with a design of cherubim worked into them. The length of each cloth shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each cloth shall be four cubits, all the cloths to have the same measurements. Five of the cloths shall be joined to one another, and the other five cloths shall be joined to one another. Make loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set, and do likewise on the edge of the outermost cloth of the other set. Make 50 loops on the one cloth and 50 loops on the edge of the end cloth of the other set, the loops to be opposite one another. And make 50 gold clasps and couple the cloths to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle becomes one whole. All right, so we've just gotten some very specific details, right? And the the beginning of this uh, sentence, of this chunk, it says, Ve'et ha-mishkan ta'ase. And the mishkan you're going to make. And here are instructions for making the mishkan. That is what began our Parshat Truma, is, Vayikhuli Truma, they shall take for me Truma, gifts. The tabernacle is to be constructed out of gifts that the Israelites give. Nadiv uh, Lev, they have to be, uh, it has to be a voluntary gift. Their heart has to be moved to give it. There is going to be a tax, right? There's a half shekel tax that will be part of, uh, you know, what's going on. But, but the Mishkan itself is built only out of gifts brought by the Israelites. So what is the true moat that they can bring? So we got a, a list at the beginning of the Parsha about all the things they could bring, and of course, that's what we have here, is, is what what they're going to do with that. Um, all right, so the the Mishkan itself is going to be made of right strips of cloth with fine twisted linen of blue, purple, and crimson yarn. Why blue, purple, and crimson yarn? Royalty. Royalty, what else? Rare, so it's expensive. That which made it also, so that's why it's royalty. What else? What else are these colors about? They look nice. (laughs) (laughs) Some people like green, Bert. Um, So (laughs) there's twelve tribes. So these, so royalty, magic. Blue is the color of magic. So you think about think about the Near East. Think about, the, even right now, you think about go to anywhere in the Middle East. The blue there's blue everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's blue everywhere. The chamsa'ot that you'll see, the um, the eye, the big you know eyes that are against the evil eye are blue. Okay, most of the eyes in the Middle East are not blue. Mm-hmm. They are brown, brown right? So, um, but... but the eye is blue because the, the blue was a color of magic. It had a lot of power in the uh, ancient Near East. So if you're taking a community that's been used to magical expression, then you need to make sure that is represented in your new religious right, symbol, which is the Mishkan. Well, the Israeli flag now. Right? Exactly right. So this is it's a very powerful color in the region. So blue and, and it's expensive to make. So also, uh, so... Royalty, which is purple and blue. So some have said uh, that also we get, so in Kabbalah, there's this idea that uh, blue uh, is the masculine and crimson is the feminine and they come together to make purple. purple so that you know, we kind of have the union of two different uh, colors that then come together to make the third color, if you will. And so even if we, and, and Kabbalah tends to not think masculine, feminine in terms of how we tend to think of that, right? It's it's energies. It's more like yin and yang, that you know you talk about um, heat and cold, and you know and the balance of all those things. It's not about you know girls and boys, right? So it's um, so it's a balance that you take this side and you take this side and you bring them together and you make uh, purple, which, which is a lovely interpretation. Um, all right, so we've got all the colors that you have to have there. 
And we are told that five of the cloths shall be joined to one another and the other five cloths shall be joined to one another. So you sew five together, you sew another five together, right? And then presumably you're going to sew those two halves right together because remember the Mishkan is essentially a tent. So it's uh, covered in cloth. We're going to make loops of blue wool on the edge, right? And so we're getting very clear instructions about what's supposed to happen. So all of these loops, and then we're making 50 gold clasps <coughs> that couple the cloths to one another so that the tabernacle, echad, so that the mishkan will be echad. One. Right? So this is not... I, I, I can't believe that it's said this way by accident. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the mishkan is echad, and... Adonai is Echad. Okay. How long is a cubit? From here to here. On a man. Or women like me who have monkey arms. But um, from from the tip of the finger to the to the elbow is a cubit. You know what? I'm terrible with measurements. I'm terrible, terrible with them. So I have no idea. Um, when you tell me it's the size of a football field, I'm like, okay, all right. It's the size of three football fields. I'm like, okay, good to know. I have no idea what that means. Um, yeah, I just need to watch more football, right? Like, Laura's like, what's the matter with you? Like, this is the size of a, I mean, a man's, of a and and all the cloths have the same measure, whatever they have, doesn't seem that big. Right. 28 cubits can't be very long. So it's, this is not a huge structure. Right, because they have to carry it. We think of it as a huge structure, mm-hmm. right? But they're going to be schlepping it, right? Um, and there's not much that goes on in there. They light the menorah. They put the showbread out on the table, right? There's a altar outside. The altar's not inside the Mishkan, right? What's inside the Mishkan? What ritual elements are inside the Mishkan? The incense. Mm-hmm. The menorah, the table. What else? In the ark, in the holy of holies. So that's all there is. And God. Isn't that about the size of this room? And God. Twenty-eight cubits would be about thirty-six feet. Well, that's And there were a lot. So it's their chapel, right? Their traveling chapel. And so there, the, the, and remember, what what is the other reason it doesn't have to be very big? There's only the people. There's a lot of people <laughs> in there. Exactly. Sorry. Only the priests go in there, right? Levites don't even go in there, right? The priests go in there, and into the back only who? God. Only the high priest goes into the holy of holies when Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, right? So. <clears throat> the Holy of Holies usually doesn't, nothing happens with that, right? That's off limits to everybody, uh, even the high priest, until the uh, Avodah service of Yom Kippur. Asuli Mikdash. They shall make me a Mikdash. But let's go a little bit further before we go back to the Asuli Mikdash. You shall then make cloths of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Make the cloths 11 in number. The length of each cloth shall be 30 cubits, and the width of each cloth shall be 4 cubits, the 11 cloths to have the same measurements. Join five of the cloths by themselves, and the other six cloths by themselves, and fold over the sixth cloth at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the cloth of the other set. Make 50 copper clasps, and fit the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together so that it becomes one whole. As for the overlapping excess of the cloths of the tent, the extra half cloth shall overlap the back of the tabernacle, while the extra cubit at the other end of each length of tent cloth shall hang down to the bottom of the two sides of the tabernacle and cover it. And make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of dolphin skins above. Okay. So the... The beautiful thing that we just talked about is covered by skin, skin. skin. covered by leather. Why? To protect it. To protect it. 
So, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> dolphin not is not dolphin. Animals. I don't know where they got all the other stuff either. But, you know. <laughs> uh, they borrowed it from the Egyptians. <laughs> Remember, as they're leaving, God disposed the Egyptians favorably to the Israelites, and they borrowed a bunch of stuff. Um, it's kind of like borrowing a Kleenex. Right? So, uh, dolphin skin is not dolphin skin. I don't know how this continues to be translated this way. I really don't. Um, most likely, it is a color that we're dealing with. It is a color of uh, leather hide that has been tanned in the sun. And most likely, it is like a um, yellowish. So there's different... There's different tints, right, to leather that is tanned. And uh, they think this one is a, like, a, a, a mustard color, like a yellowish color. So where dolphin came from, I absolutely do not know. Um, but it is unlike, I mean, there, there are no dolphins in the desert. So, or hanging out in Egypt, right? They didn't... <laughs> really? <laughs> right? Um, it put in on purpose by the author. In rabbinic times, the tachash, so that's the word that's used here, tachash. In rabbinic times, the tachash was invested with mythical association and identified with, are you ready for it? The unicorn. <laughs> sort, sort of like dolphins. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. So so there's there's an Arabic cognate that sounds similar. Uh, It says, which denotes both the dolphin and the dugong found in the Red Sea. Modern scholars have variously identified the biblical creature with one or the other. So that's where the translation dolphin comes from. Uh, A suggestion to equate the term with the Akkadian which I can't even say, the name of a precious stone of either yellow or orange color seems more plausible since that would, word is also used to describe leather that is dyed and tanned the color of that stone. Right? Significantly, only the hides of goats and sheep were so treated. So that's the, that is the explanation I buy because it sounds the most plausible to me. Like I, I agree with the commentary that that seems like Okay, if that's what you call the leather, tahash, what, what, I mean, the, the stone is tahash, right? So, it, I mean, if you call it that, why, why wouldn't you think that that's, right? Do we know Instead of dolphin, like it just... Well, that's, was this to some extent a description of something written a lot later that actually existed? This is the big question. Who is it that's, I think it's Sheldon who's reading, uh, who wrote the Bible? Mm-hmm. And part of the whole point of who wrote the Bible is not just who wrote the Bible, mm-hmm. but what's going on with the author of the mm-hmm. Bible, and what's going on with this Mishkan business, and um, his argument is that this is, in fact, a historical memory mm-hmm. because of the detail. He believes mm-hmm. that this is an actual memory that they mm-hmm. they told... Remember, all of this would have been oral before it was written, right? And so... Why would you tell this around the fire in such detail? Who, who cares about 50 loops and blah, 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 unless you want to preserve the absolute facts of how something you treasured was put together. And his argument is that that Mishkan was kept in the north and then, because that's where the ark was, and then it, or Shiloh, and then it comes down and the temple was actually built to house the Mishkan, mm-hmm. is part mm-hmm. of his argument. That if you look at the measurements of the temple, it would make sense that the Mishkan was meant inside. to be inside the temple. Um, so moving the temporary structure into the permanent structure, which makes perfect mm-hmm. sense. Um, other folks want to say, that, of course this is not a historical mm-hmm. memory. This is... The story they tell about the shrine that they built uh, and the schleppage that actually didn't happen so much, right? So um, you, you can decide for yourself which which is more convincing, right? That it was a fantasy and so it gets all of this attention or it gets all this attention, all this detailed attention because it is a historical memory that they're trying to preserve. And 
In actuality, it makes very little difference to a lot of us. Mm-hmm. We continue to read it, like, and it always falls at the women's retreat. Always. <laughs> Always, because there's a big chunk of the book of Exodus that is devoted to the details of the Mishkan. And it is always the time of year we go away for the women's retreat. This year, we are reading next week's Parsha, which is all about the tabernacle. But I have a surprise. Oh, good. Oh, yeah. You're going to build it. I think that's what it's trying to tell us. I think that's what it's trying to tell us. We're going to slap to the desert. We're we're slapping to the desert. Yeah, that's that's exactly. Shh! Don't tell anybody. So, uh, yeah. So, I have a surprise. So, I've got I've got your back. Your rabbi's got your back. All right, fifteen, Bert. You shall make the planks for the tabernacle of acacia wood upright. The length of each plank shall be ten cubits, and the width of each plank a cubit and a half. Each plank shall have two tenons parallel to each other. Do the same with all the planks of the tabernacle. Of the planks of the tabernacle, make 20 planks on the south side, making 40 silver sockets under the 20 planks, two sockets under the one plank for its two tenons, and two sockets under each following plank for its two tenons. And for the other side wall of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 planks with their 40 silver sockets two sockets under the one plank and two sockets under each following plank. And for the rear of the tabernacle, to the west, make six planks and make two planks for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They shall match at the bottom and terminate alike at the top inside one ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. Thus there shall be eight planks with the sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under the first plank, and two sockets under each of the other planks. Okay. And if each plank is 10 cubits, that's over 20 feet. Mm-hmm. 30. Right? Probably 30. 10? Well, if it's a foot and a half. Yeah. So we are... Th- these are long planks. We are... Where? So... Right? So the Mishkan... I mean, they come from For people who know trees. this stuff, like, look yeah. online. I used to bring y'all a bunch of pictures, right? right? So look online, and if you remember all the slides and stuff I used to bring you, um, it was it was like tall and skinny. It was it was the planks are high, so it's high but but narrow, right? It's not a it's not a giant space, but it's it's tall, right? And you're going to see the temple have a similar dimension, right? Tall and uh, not necessarily huge, but but high, right? Because that's that's how you represent majesty, right? It's how it's, it's got to be impressive, right? So you can do that a couple of ways, but here they, they do it by height and uh, okay. The, so the other thing to remember is that the Israelites won't even see this. <coughs> There's a fence all the way around the Mishkan. So the, the Israelites don't even see what's going on with the Mishkan. They don't see what's happening at the altar. They don't see what's happening at the laver. And they don't see any of the rituals that are happening at the Mishkan. Only the Levites are in the courtyard dealing with sacrifice uh, and cleaning up and you know taking care of stuff. Um, the, the priests are the ones offering the sacrifices. And the priests are the ones inside the Mishkan itself. So this is very much... All of this detail, all of this talk about all of what it is and what it symbolizes and what it's about, and the people don't experience it, right? Other than they know it's there, right? If it's tall, you know, then they can see part of it. Um, but they don't see any of the activity but they that's going on. The material, so they at least have an idea of what well, should be there. <laughs> what it's made out of. Didn't it get assembled and disassembled? By very specific clans. No, but they would see it. It was all everything was covered mm-hmm. before it was. Oh, really? So they wouldn't even see <clears throat> one one tr- one clan. Its job was to cover everything, and the other clan's job was to come and do porterage. Mm-hmm. So the Gershonites, the Merarites, and the Kohatites. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. That everything was covered? Yeah. Yeah. Dolphins. Yeah. So there's this big move, big movement in Israel to rebuild the temple. Are they also going to rebuild the Mishkan? No, because the temple took the place of the Mishkan. And when Mashiach comes and the dead are resurrected and we have the third temple, it's going to be a temple, not the Mishkan. So what they need to rebuild is the temple, not the Mishkan. Just so you're clear. that. Um, yes? Well, it, it, it's true that they don't see it, but at least they got a report as to where all the booty went. That's, that's exactly right. And so if you don't see it and you're not a part of it and you're kind of excluded from what happens there, what is one way you can participate in it? Telling the story about every single loop and clasp. So this is part of right the possibility about why this tradition gets kept and why it becomes important that it's preserved is because that is the way the people can access the experience of the Mishkan. And later, it became certainly for the rabbis the way they could participate in the temple. Right? Remember, once the priesthood is destroyed, once the temple's destroyed, biblical Israelite cult religion is gone. Gone. Obliterated overnight. We should have disappeared in that historical moment. Israelite religion was gone. So if the cult is gone, what do you have left? Stories about what happened in the temple. Memories. Memories that become stories, right? So they're not my memories, they're my ancestors' memories. For me, they're stories, but they're someone else's memories. And for the rabbis, this is how they, when people look at some of the, the Mishnah, they're just like, why are these people so OCD and obsessing on exactly when would the morning sacrifice have happened? Exactly what time, right? Would the morning offering have happened in the temple? And they obsess about this. And what time is evening exactly? When is it day and when is it night? Exactly. And I mean, think about it. Think about Jews who light candles. At what time is sundown exactly? And when can Havdalah happen? When there's three stars in the sky, right? So it's very, very precise. And they and they write and they argue and they write and they argue. No, it's not then. It's four stars. No, it's seven stars. No, it's before the star. And people are like, this is nuts <laughs> that this stuff became important to a people. Why? Because it was their only way of engaging with the rituals of the temple. It was the only thing that connected them to the religion of their ancestors, right? to, to the religion of the land of Israel. And remember, most of these folks were in where? Where were the folks who were having all these conversations? Babylonia. Babylonia. So it's how they can participate in what happened right, in uh, times before them, but also in the land of Israel. And so for them, it's, a, it's an act of love that they are reading these instructions and remembering this through the eyes of their ancestors. Because yeah? it's all gone. 70 AD, all gone. Now, how happy... It's so Jewish. It's so Jewish. How happy were the rabbis with the system in the first century of the temple and the priesthood? Not very, right? How did we survive? Why did we survive when the priesthood was obliterated? Because we had a bunch of rabbis who already were doing something different than the temple ritual because they were critical of the temple ritual, just like Jesus. He was one of them. He was one of the Jews who were deeply critical of the temple and the priesthood and the corruption. So only the Jews. They were critical. They had a different movement that was kind of pushing against. That's how we survived. And what do they do? They sit around and obsess about the temple ritual. It's so Jewish. (laughs) The very system that they were really having a lot of problems with. They sit around and lovingly argue about when did the sacrifice exactly happen? So what was the corruption you're talking about? So it, the priests were not elected the, and didn't have to audition and did not get annual reviews, <laughs> right? They, they were born into the priesthood. It, and I always struggle with this word, whatever it means, how you inherit it is because you're born a priest, right? So um, it's hereditary. And so therefore, 
if your position is secure forever for you and your children and your family, what is to stop you from skimming a little off the top? Your, your position is completely secure. You can't get fired. You can't get replaced. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect setup for corruption. And they were... Jesus, what did Jesus do? What, what did he do? He cleaned out the money. He turned over the tables of the money lenders. Why? Why was he upset about that? What is the corruption? The, pari- the priests are getting a cut of the business happening on the sidewalk. What, what's Jesus' real problem with that? He wasn't getting it. Oh my God, such a cynical group. Because they were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of the people who were borrowing that money. Right? Didn't we just read last week? You shall not lend my people money at at interest. Right? So it, it becomes this huge issue that the temple is involved in. And what happens is because of anti Semitism, we get all defensive when we hear Jesus. And Christians talking about Jesus dealing with the corruption of the temple, we get very defensive. If we can take a deep breath and listen to Amy Jill Levine, our scholar who was here, and say, if there is an anti-Jewish slant to the stories about Jesus, it's a wrong reading. It's a wrong reading. So we get defensive, but if we can take a deep breath and see Jesus as a Jew... He was no different than the rabbis we venerate. We venerate the people who were deeply critical of the temple because we agree with them that that's wrong, right? Our values are the values of the folks who say you shouldn't, the priest shouldn't be taking a cut of the business on the street and the business on the street should not be taking advantage of the poor. Yay, Pharisees. (laughs) Yay, rabbis, right? But we get all crazy when Jesus says it. He was us. He was one of ours criticizing what was happening. Now, it's true. His views and his teachings went a little too far afield, right, for the comfort of the rabbis, um, which is why there was a huge right, tension between them. But, but many, of what, many of the things he had to say were things that rabbinic Judaism is founded on. Would Jesus have been a Pharisee? No, he would, because he, he went off the reservation <laughs> a little too far. Um, the Pharisees have been the Qumran cave those are the Essenes Essenes, that's right Right. so they're another so it's actually a good topic so first century there's a lot going on right? and we tend to think of it as Jews and pagans or Jews and Canaanites Israelites and Canaanites there was so much going on in the first century that there were all kinds of expressions of Judaism the Essenes are an example of a very radical ascetic Aesthetic, ascetic group, fringe, we would call them fringe today, group. They were Jews, right? But we would not recognize much of what they stood for, right? Or, or at least the focus for them. The same way we're, we're Jews, as are the ultra-Orthodox, but the ones who are focusing on building the third temple, we just don't have a terrific amount in common with them, right? But we're all Jews. And so that's how it was in the first century that you had, Jesus was a Jew, but that doesn't say what kind of a Jew he was. We tend to think, well, if he was a Jew, how come, right? But it's like, what kind of Jew, right? When Jesus is baptized, right? We believe he probably was baptized into this kind of religion that focused on eschatology, that focused on end times. And so he, he starts to enter into this other kind of focus, more like the ascetics, the Essenes, right? And so starts to leave the reservation. And also Jesus had a lot to say about the Roman government, right? And you, you start talking about the Roman government. I, I, sometimes I'm drawn to these like horrible, horrible TV shows on Netflix <laughs> that I then binge watch. Um, and one of them was called Rome was so good. It was, but it was just like, oh, I can't watch what's happening. I can't watch what's happening. Um, it, it's so good. It's called Rome. Uh, and, I mean, that's one of them, but I've watched several others like it. Um, and if you study the Roman, if you study the Romans at all, their cruelty was unparalleled. And their technology that allowed them, I think of it like the Nazis, 
match cruelty and a, and a hunger for power and match it with really good technology and it's stupefying, right? The horrors that happen. Um, so anytime we hear Jesus criticizing the Romans for the Jews who are living under the Roman government, that was terrifying. You can't say that stuff, right? And he's a Jew and he's speaking as a Jew. This is the tension between the Pharisees and Jesus and followers of Christ. Jesus from up here is a teacher in the Galilee. Christ stuff is happening down here. Finally, you get those coming together and you get Jesus as the Christ. So, so what, what, that starts to be vocal against the Roman government and the Jews, the Israelites living under that are like, stop, stop with that. Jesus is year zero, right? When did he die? 39. Okay, so then, and when was the temple destroyed by the Romans? 70. Oh, oh, 40 years later, it's obliterated. They have every right to be nervous. Because 40 years later, it's all gone. The Jews are slaughtered and exiled, and Jerusalem is blown up. Right? Fire with limestone, boom. It, the oxygen or whatever it is catches. What is it? Richard Blum. So, and, um, and it blows up, right? So they blew up Jerusalem. So historically, even though the Pharisees are not the hero of the Jesus story, because they were very much against him once he gets that loud and vocal, right? They turn him over to the authorities. Like, he's, he's gone rogue, and he's going to bring destruction down on our heads, right? So it turns out that's the truth. <laughs> it happened 40 years later. And so I think we also just need to remember that we get all defensive. It was Pontius Pilate who killed Jesus. Yes, it was Pontius Pilate who killed Jesus. But let's be honest, the Pharisees were happy to see him go. They were the ones who turned him into the same. They turned him in. And they were, and they were original. And in the absence of the whole Jesus narrative, normally the Pharisees would have been 100% against whatever the Sanhedrin wanted to do because the Sanhedrin was the sort of the class of Jews that was in power. So these are, these are all the ways that we, we have our kind of reactions but don't necessarily focus on the history. Um, so I just always encourage us to like, take a deep breath. <laughs> right? Um, because it's important. It's really important. Because then we can have a conversation with somebody you know, who's talking about, well, the Jews were against Jesus. They turned him in. It's like, well, yeah, they did. Let's remember the situation they were living under, shall we? And let's remember what happened 40 years later. They were absolutely right to be worried, right? And to say, you deal with him. We, we are not part of this. Like, don't look at us, right? He's, he's left the reservation. Like, and, and it makes complete sense. But usually those conversations don't tend to be hugely rational. All right, let's look at, please, verse 3 of chapter 26. So we're going back to the five cloths, yeah? Chamesh hayiriot tihiena, right? So we're talking about these five claws. What tihiena they shall be? What chavrot isha el achota? Put together. Put together. And what does it literally mean, Rita? Isha el achota. A woman and her sister. A woman to her sister. That's a funny way. That is a funny way to say what we're trying to say here. So first of all, the we're using the feminine. So the the parts are being described in the feminine. And then when you say one shall be attached to the other, the Hebrew says literally, Chavrot Isha El Achotah. A woman to her sister. Except here it's the verb. Right? That they will be chevred. Isha el achotah. 
So our commentator, Rabbi Michal Shekel, notices this. Look at that first paragraph after the italics. Go to the last sentence of that paragraph. The first, you see this, the second commentary that we're in? Yes? Michal Shekel. All right, so go to that that paragraph below the uh, italics, to to the last sentence of that. Terming it as Isha el-Achota, a woman to her sister, creates an image of support that is far beyond sewing cloths together or lining up planks. Because the planks, the same thing is going to be said of the planks. You're making the clasps so that they can be attached, Isha el-Achota, a woman to her sister. It creates an image of support that is far beyond sewing cloths together or lining up planks. It says something deeper about this building, this mishkan, where God's presence will dwell. At the very beginning of the parsha, we are told that the mishkan and its furnishings will be built out of items that are free will gifts. Everything in this tabernacle is given with love. Everything has meaning beyond its intrinsic material value. We often speak of items that are important to us as having sentimental value. Not so here. The act of giving something freely bestows upon it a spiritual value. Right? The other level to remember here is that these are slaves. Right? According to our mythic history, these are slaves. What does a slave have to give? Not a lot. And so the very act of giving and giving generously and voluntarily bestows dignity on the giver. So a a bit earlier when you were wondering why why it is that even in the face of not being able to see what's going on, our stories go into such excruciating detail about every little this and that of the Mishkan. Isn't part of that essentially that this thing that we created out of love is so important for us that we we cherish every we cherish every detail of it. And we have to remember every detail of it because that is our way of saying how much we care about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would take it further to say that it also, in going to, into all the details, it also democratizes the gifts because everybody gave something. And so if you go through every single detail of the Mishkan, you're recounting every single person's gift. And so, yeah, so it's, a, it's, a, it's about love, about this thing we built together out of love. We show our love for it. We have our loving relationship to it by by noticing and talking about every detail of the beloved, right? Um, you should see her hair, right? You know, it's it's the details and um, th- that show our love and and shows that we value every single contribution that is made, even a tiny little thread, thread and loop and clasp. But also, too, uh, beyond that, it gives them. Memory and everything of what they accomplished with almost nothing, and but they were happy to be part of it, and so that keeps them going on that corner too. Right, and hopefully sets up this idea that that's part of the way you show your love and commitment is to <clears throat> give, however much or however little right. you have. We give of it, right? With with Nadiv Lev being of voluntary heart. The act of building the tabernacle draws us into a closer relationship with God, a familial relationship. There are many ways of symbolizing our relationship with the divine. Often it is viewed as a parent-child relationship. At times it is also a spousal relationship. Now with the building of the tabernacle, there is the potential for a sibling relationship. The very walls of the Mishkan reflect this. 
in, it is the closeness of Isha el Achota, a woman to her sister, right? So there's many ways to represent our relationship with the divine. What she's saying is if, if we allow for lots of different familial images to be used, this one is about siblings, right? That we're not just God's child, not just God's spouse, but in this sense, we are partners with God, that we are partners with one another and we are siblings we are partners with God in a way that is evoked when we say a woman and her sister right that there's a closeness there that is a unique closeness with all of its complications right there's a unique closeness that's evoked people experience that to a greater or lesser degree in real life Um, but I think for all of us there's an it's evoked, right? This idea that a woman to her sister has a special kind of closeness. And what this, uh, what Rabbi Shekel is saying is th- that's a part of what the Mishkan is representing, is this kind of closeness between us and the divine. That is the point of the Mishkan. Susan, did you have something you wanted to add? No. Okay. Cool. Yes? Can we take from the text that uh, the sister characters up till now are have been closer or more trusting one another than the brother characters? And is there a reason why it would have been a brother, a man with brother? <laughs> well, the brothers yeah, haven't done very well. Starting with Cain and Abel. Really you don't want to say close like Cain and Abel. That doesn't ring. Right. Or Esau and Yaakov. Um, so it's a very... It's a very good. It's a very good question. Like it's uh, because uh, you know we yeah, say. We can say oh, womanhood and stuff, but who are we? Like, who are we dealing with at this time? That it's a very good question. Um, I think probably we're dealing actually with um, an image that is evoked that's not related to the old stuff of Rachel and Leah, right? This is its own tradition that that. I think it's more of a poetic image, a woman to her sister. That would have been poetic then. Yeah. And modern. Yeah. Yeah. I think women shared child rearing. Women raised each other's children in a society like this, right? They they cooked together. They you know they were there for each other during labor and birth and delivery and and then so I think there was a sense that that women the bond between them, and remember, it was a very gender-segregated society. So, you know, women were together a lot, and so I think there's a special resonance of a woman to her sister that would have been evoked. It seems like it's a, a, a closeness situation, like in the Shir Hashirim, Akuti Kala, my sister, my bride, indicating the closeness of the but the only difference there is that that is a masculine feminine relationship. Achotikala is my lover and my sister, right? So probably that is not what's evoked but it's still with a woman a and her sister. But but sister as an idea of closeness, I think certainly certainly um, is there here here and there. Um, all right. So drop down to the next big paragraph. The purpose of the Mishkan is to give God a symbolic presence within the community. Kasuto explains it as being, quote, a tangible symbol of God's presence among them. This divine dwelling place denotes a relationship with God. Beforehand, God dealt with individuals, the patriarchs, matriarchs, Moses, etc. Now, when we join together and function as a community, God will be in our midst. We are all aware of the importance of community in Judaism. Certain things can only take place in a community. It is the preferred mode for prayer and study. Community provides us the opportunity to say, blessed is the presence of God from God's place. Truma teaches that joining together brings God nearer to us. Joining together can be done in many ways. If done wholeheartedly with mutual support as, quote, a woman to her sister, God's presence, the Shekhinah, dwells in our midst. Some of us are the cloth of the tabernacle, Others are the planks, but we are incomplete as individuals. We must be joined to one another, Isha el Achota, with the clasps, so that the tabernacle becomes Echad. 
I said it last night at the board meeting. This is a paradigmatic text for anybody who is participating in organized Jewish community and organized Jewish communal life. Why do we do it? Why are we here? Why did we build this? Why do we try to raise the money to keep it going? Because we really, truly believe, and in this I am a holy roller. Because I wouldn't do it otherwise. It's too hard. Right? It's just too hard. But I'm a holy roller. I really believe exactly what she said and I believe that it, it does come from as old as the Mishkan, that when we come together to build something, when we see one another as achot, as ach, right? when we come together and we do this business of seeing one another as sister, as brother, and then treating each other like that, knowing that, that the idea is to draw the holiness uh, into this world, I, I, what, what's better to be about? than that I believe it's transformative for us I believe it's transformative for us as a community and I believe when we do that well that becomes transformative for the world and that's the point right of of, since at the beginning you shall be to me and I'm kadosh it isn't you build a mishkan and okay now you've got this great tabernacle yay right it's if you have a tabernacle so that you have a means by which to be an Am Kadosh, a holy people. Because a holy people can create a holy world, a holy society, right? If we're living into what it means to be a holy people, then it, it changes the kind of society, right, that we build. And I don't know about y'all, but given the events in Florida, I've just about had it with people's absolutely irresponsible, unethical, immoral resistance to having a conversation about how do we translate our values about the sanctity of human life and the responsibility to care for our children. Sending them to school? Did you hear the girl's father? His weeping said, I sent my daughter to school because that's where she should be safe. You don't want them hanging out on the streets. You want them in school. Keep your kids in school. That's what we keep hearing. So that your kids will be safe. I sent my kid to school and she's dead. And we can't have a conversation in this country? 17 dead. Teachers laying their bodies over children. A teacher killed because he was holding the door open to let more students in to hide. And we can't have a conversation about gun control? About weapons that are designed only to cause as much damage as possible in the shortest amount of time? We can't have a conversation about that even? And for me, it comes right out of here. You will be a holy people. So that means we have to translate all of this into some kind of action or it's, or it's nothing. Or it's just a bunch of details about a building that did or did not exist. And then just, just close it. Why do we bother? Why do we bother? It means absolutely nothing. If it doesn't turn us into a people ready to take whatever heat is going to come, and believe me, heat's going to come. The Jewish Journal has asked me to write about it and I feel like I can't stay silent anymore and I'm not going to be writing about what I think should happen with policy but I am going to write that I'm horrified that we are not having this conversation that after Las Vegas ooh big flurry and then poop, that got defeated gone done no more conversation about what to do to keep people safe and I don't, again, I'm not even talking policy. I'm talking about our willingness to face the difficulties of that conversation. And if we aren't willing to do that, I, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. But, um, but as a religious leader, my whole job is to be aspirational. That's my job. And if I can't do that, be aspirational, that we can have this conversation and must have this conversation, it is now a moral issue to me, if we can't say that it's a moral issue and we need to talk about it, then you don't need religious leaders. Lock the front door. Because this place means nothing. And I, again, I'm not saying what that is. We don't have to agree. 
But this should be the place where A, we can have those kinds of conversations and where we should draw on the values of what we are reading so that we know some guidance about what to put at the center of that conversation. And for us, that is, of course, pikuach nefesh, the sanctity of human life and saving and protecting human life. And that is first and foremost. And so these are details, yes, about something that we can think is irrelevant. But the point of it is what she is saying here, which is building this is supposed to turn us into a people who behaves a certain way in the world and creates a certain kind of world uh, around them. We read in the Torah, she says at the bottom, and we know from our own lives that we do not always succeed at this work. Usually, hopefully, the bonds that keep us joined to one another, the clasps that make us whole, are sturdy enough to withstand the pressure. When we can build on these bonds of sisterhood and brotherhood, we too create an environment for holiness in our midst. We must trust that the clasps will hold. However hard it gets, however hard the conversation is, we have to trust that the clasps will hold. That is where we can lean into hope and into optimism and into um, a different kind of future. Uh, And as for me, I believe that is the only way to honor the dead. That is the only way to honor the innocent blood and life, the memories that will never be created by those kids. I have a 14-year-old daughter. Many of them who were killed were 14. It just, it doesn't even have to be about me and my daughter. It's just like the memories that will never be created by these people, the people who, you know, are, who are devastated because of who they've lost. That, 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 we, we have to honor that. And the only way to do that, I believe our tradition says, is to change the world around us, to change the world that we live in. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.